0: Sometimes you see a phone call coming in, and you just know that something bad has happened. I remember back several years ago when my dad was still alive. He was in pretty poor health. He could still walk around, sort of, but it was with a walker, and it was very slowly. I'm the oldest of three sons, and of the three, I live the closest. It's only about a five or six minute drive for me to get to my parents' place. So if something happened, I'd be the one to get that call. Lots of times my phone would ring and it would be my mom calling, quite upset and worried because my dad had fallen and she couldn't get him up. And you know when a phone call comes in the middle of the night, it's almost never going to be good news. We've had a few of those as well. For my guest today, Bill... Life was good. He and his wife had two children David, in high school, and Kristen, who had just graduated from college and was about to start a career. But then Bill got a phone call. It was from a woman who identified herself as a police detective. The phone call was about Bill's daughter. Real people? in unreal situations.
1: There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. Friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river, and I'm inside my car. He
2: had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you.
1: And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I
3: jumped on the hood of the car, and I held on.
1: And I looked into the garage, and he was hanging from the rafters.
3: I had somebody standing on
2: my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead.
0: I'm Scott Johnson, and this is... Is what was that like? Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. We give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because Everytown no matter how nice it may
2: seem, has a dark side.
0: I'd like for those listening to this to have an idea of who Kristen was and what she was like. Can you just tell us about your daughter, Kristen?
2: Well, you know, I almost feel like I have to start off by saying that that she was 21 years old when she died. And I hate to start at that spot, but when i think of her the first thing i think of her is that she's not physically with us so i start there but what kind of a person was she in life she was very smart she was extremely creative loved to write loved to make things liked to do photography she loved to loved to write poetry she would write little stories and things like that she wasn't the type of person too who would write a write a poem in high school or college and then come running to us and say, Hey, look what I wrote. She would write it. And then sometimes you would just kind of find it later, or she'd write something in high school and you'd find it in the yearbook. So you would kind of sometimes trip upon these things, but she was fun. She had a a really nice sense of humor. I mean, just kind of refreshing real bright spot in people's lives. Uh, You know, I mean, I think sometimes, unfortunately you find out afterwards that how many people loved her. She loved her family. She was loyal to friends. She rode horses. She played the flute. Went to college on a scholarship. While she was there, won a job at General Mills, and she had not quite gotten to the point of starting there. Very cute, very attractive. I mean, just really the as I say, the full package. Scott. I mean, she 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 was one of those persons that if I walked into a room she was there, I'd say, wow, she really she really makes makes a statement. And yet it was my daughter, too.
0: When this happened, you were a family of four. Yes. Your wife, Michelle, your two kids, Kristen and David. Can you give us kind of an overview? What was going on in your lives at that time? The kids, uh, and how old were the kids?
2: Kristen was 21, and David at the time was 17. And they were always very good together. There was barely ever a hint of sibling rivalry. They were so great together. A lot of fun on vacations, especially. But at that particular time, my son was finishing his junior year, just had gotten a week or two before, just had gotten his junior ring or his uh, his ring, high school ring. So we there was that. He is, was the most valuable player on his JV tennis team, so we we're celebrating that. Here she is right at the end of college and graduating, going to start at General Mills in July. I mean we're kind of we're a family of four, and so many things that we felt we invested so much time and our hearts and in some cases too, you know, financially invested in these two children was really paying out now, you know we are really seeing it It's kind of like all those things that you tried to accomplish were coming true, and you know then you get a call one evening Kristen was going to college at St. Joseph's University, just outside of Philadelphia. She was in food marketing and she had won a job with General Mills. So she was up there. We live just outside of Baltimore. So the day of her graduation, we got in our, we, we took a couple of cars because after the graduation, my wife was going to get together with Kristen and go to the Atlantic Ocean or Ocean City, Maryland, to be precise. We have a small house down there. So they were going to go there. My wife is a schoolteacher. She was out of school at that point. They were going to go there for kind of a long weekend. And my son was still in high school and I was working. So anyway, we took two cars up there and we went to the graduation. And so I remember when I first saw her, we pulled up and she had a, had an apartment. She was outside. And, and it was just kind of like um, a beautifully lit scene in a movie where it's morning She's going to graduate in a few hours. Pulled up, and I wasn't sure it was her at first. Had this beautiful dress on at that point. Of course, she had to put on the graduation gown and all that mortarboard business and everything. But but I thought, putting it into words, a person who never looked more radiant, happy, somebody who was so proud of what she had done. You know, she was so ready. And so, you know, we kind of joined together and went over to the the whole graduation part of it, which was under a great big white tent. We had to sit there for hours. It was May 14th. And although it was only in the low 80s, it felt like in the mid to high 90s. It just, it was a really intense day. But she graduated. She came out for that. And then after that ceremony, met with her best friend at the time, who's a young woman named Samantha. And also met her boyfriend at that time. Now, she was 21. He was 27 or 8. So that was kind of a new thing. But she introduced us. And when I met him, focused on him now, because I was so focused on her, shook his hand like a teletype through my mind was this thought. These precise words ran through my mind as... Wow, I'd never want to tangle with this guy. So here I am just meeting him, and I'm thinking I could picture myself duking and out with this guy.
0: Not a good first impression.
2: No. No. And I I probably only had that feeling a few times in my life, but that's not a common thing, you know, for me to meet somebody and and less, at least go to that place. You know, I make Say, wow, that guy's strong or that guy's tall or whatever it is, I don't know, dresses nicely, could be anything. But I'm like, I pictured myself being in some kind of a confrontation with this guy. So that was that was a premonition I should have followed up somehow, I guess. But
0: Yeah, but it's so easy to dismiss that thinking, I don't even know this guy. Why would I why would I think that? Oh
2: yeah. Oh, I yeah, I'd be the first person to discount my feelings in a case like that. It's like, boy. What are you thinking about? You know, I'm, I, wasn't, I wasn't focused on what's wrong with him. I just figured what's wrong with me. But kind of sliding off of that, still kind of waiting around on a parking lot and and saying hi to Samantha and then Kristen's other friend, her best friend from high school, came up for this. Her name was Felicity. And we're still in touch with both Samantha and Felicity even now. Still very close with them. Took a lot of digital pictures just all different combinations of of Kristen and this guy. Then he actually had a new camera, a new digital camera. He took a picture of the four of us, meaning my wife and I, Kristen and David. And he and I even had emails the following week because we were exchanging the pictures I took and the pictures he took. But that was kind of graduation day. And there was some tension going on with Kristen and this guy even then. I had no idea what it was, but I said to my wife, and then I said to Kristen, "Look, if he wants to come with us when we go get something to eat after this, McCormick and Schmick or someplace like that, you know, maybe have him come." And and Kristen didn't want to do that, so I was actually okay with that. I'd rather it be the four of us to just be the core group. But
0: right, that day that that time is about her anyway. You're celebrating her accomplishment.
2: Yeah, and you know she was in Philadelphia, so it wasn't like we were seeing her constantly. So it was a real catch-up time, and Michelle was going to continue on with Kristen to Ocean City, Maryland, but David and I then would kind of say goodnight and kisses and hugs and all, and we were heading back to the Baltimore area to kind of go back to what we were up to. So here you kind of come off the elation of that. You know, you're exchanging pictures, and Kristen had left me this one voicemail a couple days after the graduation, just talking and just going on and on about a camera she also received, which she didn't really use that day. But she was using it and downloading pictures. And this was a whole new thing for her to have a digital camera. So that was that was a, that was was her favorite graduation present. She took a lot of pictures over the next three weeks or so. The key to this is that exactly 20 days after that graduation day, on a rainy Friday, June 3rd, 2005, I was with my Parents that evening at a restaurant near here, again, Baltimore area, my wife and son were separately closer to Washington at a, at a graduation party for some friend's son who just graduated from high school. I got a call after I left my parents at this restaurant and said good night. They went home. Got a call from a detective who handled it very professionally, but the key was she needed to tell me something and could not tell me over the phone. No matter how much I was in disbelief, I got a detective calling me. What's this all about? And I was like, what is is this? Who are you? Well, they've already been to the house. No one was there, of course. They had to tell me something. It had to be in person. So that was a lot to swallow driving along in the rain with your wipers going. And I pulled off, got this detective's number and said, I need to call you back. Called my wife who was at this graduation party, told her what was going on. She asked me, Is this about Kristen? And I said, What on earth? Why would this be about Kristen? These are local policemen, uh, you know, detectives and all. So I wound up meeting them at a at a giant grocery store near home. I didn't want to meet them at my front door because I you can't be sure who it's going to be, you know, in a situation like that, but met there and then, you know, that's kind of when you're handed a parent's worst nightmare when She wanted me to sit in her car. This this the the main detective was a woman, wanted me to sit in her car and tell me this thing that she couldn't tell me over the phone. And I said, No, let's do it here by the automatic doors and with my back up against a Gatorade container right by the big windows, you know, with all the sale signs and stuff at a grocery store. And I said, No, just tell me here. And she said, Your daughter Kristen was murdered today by her boyfriend. That set us off on a whole new trajectory in life never to recognize most parts of our lives again at that point so it was really on me once i got the gist of that which i understood immediately i i can understand what that means i i just pictured my life from that point on all the things that were that we were counting on that would just never happen the birthdays and the christmas and holiday get-togethers and her getting married to some Great guy, presumably, and having kids. I mean, just all these things. I just felt like I was watching a circuit box with the switches being snapped off. Tut, 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 tut. Then while I was back in my own car driving home, which was a short distance, my wife, who is still at this party, calls me back and says, Well, what did you find out from this detective? You know, I'd called her and said, I got this call. And she said, Well, you know, is it Kristen? And now all of a sudden I know it is. And I somehow didn't give her any details, but she said, we're coming home right now. And I said, well, yeah, you probably should. My son and my wife came to the house. I called my parents who I'd just seen at the restaurant and asked them to come to the house and found a way to say, you know, I'll tell you when you get there, what's going on and sat them in the living room. And and then I had to kind of like send their lives off you know, to the same place mine had been for about 45 minutes to an hour. I can't imagine
0: being tasked with telling the family that news.
2: Yeah. And I've looked back on that many, many times, Scott. And I really think I was, I was really chosen for that job. The fact that it was then, the fact that my wife and son were not home and somehow they caught up with me. I still don't know to this day how they got my cell phone number, but I have no doubt it was. Put on me to pass the word to everybody else, and and I, I'm not complaining at all. I I was the right person to carry that. I mean, I've carried the story from that June 3rd day to now. You know, here you are in a kind of a, as it turns out, kind of a cool Mm. June 3rd evening in the rain, and then knowing that you're facing a whole different life when that sun comes up tomorrow, and it came up strong. It was a hot, hot June 4th Saturday morning. And somehow we had the clarity to start to push through all kinds of phone calls, whether it's telling people what's going on or making appointments for funeral homes and at cemeteries. But we were, we were in the car and the three of us were going, Michelle, David, and I. And you have a feelings of still just, wow, you know, complete disbelief. You feel like you just saw her. I mean, this now was 21 days ago, but still disbelief, stress, pressure, horror, anger, shock. And then on top of it, seriously praying for guidance. I mean, just don't let me forget something. Don't let me miss something. Somebody out there, tell me what to do, you know, between friends and family and just thoughts coming to our minds to act upon. Yeah,
0: it's not like you had any practice in how to do all this.
2: Yeah, we didn't have cemetery plots all ready to go. You know, at that very same time, my parents had their plots in the military section of this one cemetery, and they were all paid for. It's just all you have to do now is pass away or something, you know? I mean, not that everybody's ready, but you're definitely not ready for your college graduate daughter to be to be buried those first days were just all about getting ready for the funeral and people showing up at the house, this flow of people calling and showing up and bringing food. More people brought more food. I tell you, you know, it was, it was every time you opened the door, it was a ham or something.
0: That's what people know how to do, right?
2: Yeah. God bless them. I mean, they were, they were doing everything they could to help or bring comfort. So, you know, I'm a million miles away from, I'm not complaining, you know, but it, it became like, well, where will we put that? Why am I thinking about that? But in the meantime, you know, it's not like somebody it's not like somebody had a heart attack, and then they bring them to this area and we do a funeral. I mean, in this case, my daughter's body is in the Philadelphia area, held as evidence, you know, to track down the guy that did it and to to connect, you know what what he actually literally did. To the person, because they've got to be very careful. It's pretty obvious. I mean, he stabbed her to death. It's pretty obvious what he did, but they want to be sure this doesn't go sideways somehow, you know, that somehow he turns this into a different story. The medical examiner who met, who who examined her is the same person who examined him, by the way, which is kind of interesting because he presented at a hospital on June 3rd morning. He, he attacked her around 3 a.m., But he himself presented at a hospital around 9 a.m., claiming that he was in a fight with his girlfriend. And that's why he was there, because he had a number of injuries himself. Now, the medical examiner's point of view of that and detectives working Mm -hmm. the case was that he did all of this to himself. He wanted to make it look like she attacked him and it was self-defense. That was what he was pushing for. And that's why that he attacked her at 3 a.m., but it took until 9 a.m. for him to get to a hospital because he was trying to work out his story. And he was inflicting injuries on himself with a knife at the same time. We went to three different funeral homes first. And the first two just were, I think it was a, a mixture of how the place, quite frankly, looked and smelled. Funeral homes do have that kind of I guess that's lilacs or something in there. I don't know what people typically, but it has that kind of heavy, I mean, you could be blindfolded and most of the time know you're in a funeral home, but they were just so dreary. Now, the circumstances were were dreary, of course, but I mean, this just made it worse. And the salespeople just were either cold or um, didn't. They handled it just like another job number on a job jacket or something. You know, they just didn't give you anything. And when we got to the third one, it was completely different. The place felt at least neutral, at least neutral to positive. And the guy who was the funeral director there, who handled every all of our needs, he totally got it. I mean, he understood the circumstances, and he showed us the different rooms and told us you're going to need the big room because when somebody is this age. All of our high school friends will be here. All of your friends will be here. College friends, I don't care if they're in Philadelphia, they'll come down. And they did. They had a book where people were signing in and I guess the book ran out after five hundred n- names or families or whatever that was. I mean, we, we stood it we stood in the wake for over four hours. I think we went into the fifth hour and finally at one point they said we have to close this place. That's that's the kind of person that you want to work with. He was he was great. I I don't know. I, I guess just it comes with practice, but also the type of person. But but he knew how to do some hand holding. You know, I mean the sun comes up that day, Scott, and we go to these other funeral homes, we go with this guy, we talk about things, and then one of the most bizarre things is go down this flight of steps downstairs to the casket showroom. I mean, that's really what it was like. It was like a new car showroom for caskets. And my wife had said, well, I don't think, I think Kristen would like a white one. I don't think she would want one of these dark ones or a dark wooden one. And And I remember thinking, it's so bizarre to have a conversation about what kind of a casket my daughter would like.
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DS-01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DS-01 Daily
2: Symbiotic at seed.com what. Code 25What.
0: I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com/slash what or enter code WHAT before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of CookUnity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked, so when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day, I heat it for a few minutes, and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or
3: enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what.
2: That first day was was really like um, being a, a pinball because it was calls that I was making or getting from the apartment complex where it happened, speaking with law enforcement officers trying to pick through some pieces, and they were very forthcoming. They were helpful, but call, talking with relatives, coworkers, friends. Very soon after that, newspaper reporters, and you just you just. I think this tends to happen to dads more than anybody else in the family, but you just want as many details as possible of what led up to this and what actually happened and where's this guy now and what is his story. Maybe you just want it to make sense at some point and and you just kind of know it really can't make sense. And I was actually surprised as the days wore on how well we were handling it because we were all going at it very, very hard but never really feeling exhausted. I mean, it would be 10 or 11 at night, finally on Sunday night or Monday night. The funeral didn't happen till uh, Thursday, but we kept our minds pretty clear. We seemed to have this sense of now we need to do this. Oh, we need to call this person. We need to phrase it this way. All these things kept going on. The other thing too, I just wanted to insert for a second is that something we didn't really notice until some time later when we were talking about it with a friend. We had a lot of strange occurrences that week. We had as many as nine light bulbs that blew out in the house from the time, from the day she was killed for the next seven days. I kept thinking, God, I got to get another light bulb and put it in that lamp over there. You know, then it few hours later we go in some other room and some light would blow out and it's like God I gotta go get some more light bulb. It was ridiculous. But it was mm-hmm. like these electrical things and three of our four cars wouldn't start. Wouldn't start for a day. And then the next day they'd start. So it was a lot going on. <laughs> a, lot, a lot going on. After that
0: part, that that chapter, the funeral's over and you're just back to Living life, you you actually had to go back to work.
2: Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, so I was out of I was out of there. I guess really, I think it was just two full weeks. I, I say that like it wasn't very long, but that's actually I think pretty long. I was out of there for a couple of weeks, and when I came back in, there was one person in particular who said to me that a lot of people there thought I'd never come back to work. They thought I guess, I guess they thought I'd be so shattered by what took place that I'd be dysfunctional. I guess they presumed the rest of my life. So that was eye-opening. And I said, well, I can't say I'm fine, but it never occurred to me that I'm going to quit the business. I was in advertising then as a creative guy. So it was, you know, it's kind of like you don't know me very well if you think that, I mean, this was a big thing, but I still have a lot of living ahead of me. You know, I just have this other major side project that my mind is working on, which, which in that case is dealing with the loss of your older child. You know, some people, they lose a child and, and it's horrible and the child is buried and they have to maybe, they got to figure out their own path on how to get through grieving and time passing and all the denials and anger and all the things you go through. In our case, it wasn't like that at all. It was, well, we still have to get this guy into prison you know, at least as much as we can. There's this whole other incredibly important thing, this project that has to take place and has to unfold. And, you know, we didn't have that playbook either in our hands when she was killed. I didn't know what happens next. I mean, that led to a preliminary hearing and formal arraignment and all these other phone calls and twists and turns and,
0: you know. Fortunately, you had someone who was very experienced and very invested in your case to take that through the whole process. We're not going to cover all the details of the court case and everything that's in your book, which we'll talk about shortly. You mentioned that you've had some pretty vivid dreams that included Kristen. What kind of effect did that have on you?
2: For me, they're always, no matter what I'm dreaming about, they're always very real. I mean, I'm, I'm really there and I'm not thinking, oh, I'm asleep, but I'm having the story playing along. So, so I'm really there. I'm really in that place. And it's very three-dimensional. It's very colorful. In this one instance, I was at what you would probably call kind of a county fairgrounds. It was kind of eerie. It had the feeling of if there had been a county fair taking place all day. And that, it it was hot all day. And now it's the evening. Maybe we're talking 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening. But there's no one else around. And you just sort of see the bare bulbs strung in different places, maybe from building to building or something like that or on poles with a little breeze going and crickets and things. And it's just me. And there's a little bit of dust blowing around your feet. And then I... Then I see this young woman walking towards me, kind of a flowing white dress, summer dress, and it's Kristen. And she comes up, and we're not saying very much. You know, it's kind of understood, wow, you know, it's, it's so great. It's so great under the circumstances to see you, is what I'm trying to put out to her. And she gets it. And I slowly but surely come to realize that she knows what's going on, which is that it's a dream. But then I catch on. And for probably most people, when you start to catch on, even though it's like wonderful and we're there and I'm looking at her and her blonde hair is blowing and the dress is kind of moving and you're there together, but as soon as you realize it's a dream, it starts to dial out, you know, it starts to fade. She becomes transparent, kind of. But it was just wonderful. And it was, it was as much as I could tell as real. I mean, it, like it really did happen. I mean, it's almost like she came and visited me at night, you know, and I mean, like in my own, you know, place where I was sleeping but then it's kind of over and she kind of smiles and turns and she kind of walks off from where she came from, but it was wonderful. I mean, it was, there was nothing but a great feeling of spending time with someone you cared so much about and knowing that she was okay. Honestly, that was a big part of it because when you lose somebody like that, no matter where they are, whether they're whether she's in this room with me right now talking to you, Scott, which is possible in some ways she could be, but you want to know they're okay, that they're not they're not uncomfortable, they're not in pain. And I really do believe that that she is okay. And and that was that was really kind of informing me. I don't know how many dreams I've had about her, but I've had some other ones that were that were kind of quick, you know, that where she was there and she was still very three-dimensional. There's one where she visited my wife and me at, at, of all places, some motel or someplace. And she spent time with us. Again, not a whole lot of dialogue, but still a really strong connection. One of the ones I had right before I put the book out a year and a half ago was pretty amazing because I was in some marketplace kind of thing. And it was sunny and the winds blowing around, a whole lot of people, hustle and bustle. And in the midst of it, I see somebody, like you see this in like Indiana Jones movies or something, where there's all these people crossing the camera, but the camera's looking and you see one person in particular who's coming right to you. And I realize, in the midst of it, this sure looks a lot like Kristen. But when she got to me, it was Kristen, when she got to me, it wasn't the teenager Kristen. It wasn't the 21-year-old. It was a representation of Kristen had she lived. I mean, it was like at that time I wrote the book, it was like the 36- or 7-year-old Kristen. I mean, it was it was amazing. I mean, it was like some, some screenwriter put her dialogue in there at that point. And the storyline was that she didn't die that night it was that that she had been she had been saved by a fast acting detective and that in the philadelphia area now this is this is all created in my mind but that in the philadelphia area there was a team of doctors who were always on standby for cases like this of people who were near death or people who had died in slightly ki- came back and that they saved her. But she was in suf- such rough shape from what this guy had done to her that it had taken all this time to rehab her to the point where she physically and more so emotionally could return to life with people around. It was, it was amazing. And at the end of the dream, all I wanted to do was to get her back and reintroduce her to her pa- to her mother and, and David. But I mean, that was seriously—that's as real as me sitting talking to you right now.
0: Sometimes I think it's—it's it's almost cruel how vivid dreams can be when it's something that we want so badly, and then we've got to wake up.
2: Yeah, it's not—it's the, not there.
0: Yeah, when you're talk when you're talking about that, it reminded me of the lyrics to a Tom Petty song. I don't know if you've heard this or not. It's one of his hit songs, but one of the lines is. God, it's so painful when something that's so close is still so far out of reach. Oh,
2: uh, wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can almost touch it, but yeah, yeah. It's it's a tough tease. No doubt about it. it's a big it's a big tease.
0: I want to hear the story of the locket. Can you take us through what happened then?
2: The locket story. Uh, you know, if if somebody were to go to my website, or if somebody were to get the book they'll see immediately how i liberally use a golden locket as the main visual and so when you when you see the book you'll see the words when dating hurts you'll see the locket there and you won't get it you couldn't possibly get it but but you will get it if you read the book you know or if you well, of course you'll get it now just by listening to the story so what happens is this If you go to the night of Kristen's wake, now the wake took place. Sometimes people call that a visitation, but it's the opportunity to come and see the family and offer condolences, say a few words, do things like that. And that was the night where we had just so many hundreds of people that my wife wife and I received and my son and my grandparents received there that night. Even though my daughter was attacked and stabbed and slashed no less than 50 times still through a lot of great talent I guess I could say and you know she was made very presentable in an open casket situation so people could see her that night it was not closed casket The night of that Kristen was laid out and we were receiving people. Now, in the meantime, one of my daughter's high school teachers, her name is Patricia. Unbeknownst to any of us, Patricia came there that night from home, and instead of standing in a receiving line, she actually came to the back of the funeral home and somehow came in, you know, somebody let her in, and she was on kind of a mission. And her job was to seek out Michelle, my wife, to seek out Michelle's closest friend because she wanted to share something with her. Patricia then caught up with Donna, one of my wife's very closest friends, and wanted to tell her a story of something that had happened to her. Patricia had lost two daughters four years earlier and lost them, and this is like just a horrible thing, lost her two daughters at the same time when their car which was at the University of Maryland a storm was rolling in kind of a hurricane but sometimes hurricanes have tornadoes in the midst of them in the middle of them and the car that these two young women were in one was a one was a, a senior i think the other was either freshman or her sophomore but the car was was literally picked up while driving and flung over an eight story dormitory onto a highway down below. Obviously both instantly killed. So she lost both of her daughters and friends and family had the presence of mind to present her with a locket on each one of the girls' birthdays as they came along. So she had these two precious lockets and the lockets had pictures of the girls in them. And in each case, one locket would have a picture of the girl who was killed, the daughter, and then Patricia in there, and then also a lock of that girl's hair. So she had a gold one and a silver one. So she came with these two and she showed them to Donna, Michelle's friend, and said, I know that tonight is the wake and I know that tomorrow is the funeral and burial. So I needed to get here because it's tonight or never. But if you wanted to have a locket created, this is the only opportunity for you to snip some hair, save it, and then see about getting a locket made. Once she delivered that, Pat was out of there. That was that for her. So that's the way that went. Donna waited till the end of the evening when people were busy looking at other things and she snipped some of Kristen's hair, put it in an envelope, put it in her handbag and held on to it. A month later, she went to a jeweler and his name is Kevin Welsh. And she told him about this story about her friend's daughter, Kristen, and what happened. You know, that she was attacked one night while breaking up with her boyfriend and was stabbed to death. And he's listening to the story, and he becomes particularly emotional about this abusive relationship and this girl who gets killed. In the meantime, Donna didn't know that Kevin was dating someone and was kind of at the end of dating this person, but the person he was dating, now this is a 41-year-old guy, never married, handsome guy, dating someone, and that relationship, as it turns out, was also abusive, meaning like this woman was abusive to him and at times was threatening. And it even said to him at one time before Donna showed up that day, had said, I'll tell you one thing, if you ever break up with me, I'll probably stab you to death. Now he has this story that walks in his door with Donna wanting to get a locket made, which he would eventually do. And it's like, oh my God, this girl's story is here to warn me about what can happen to me. So he thought of Kristen as his angel protector is what he he referred to her as, trying to warn him, you better be careful because what happened to me could happen to you. He's trying to deal with his girlfriend and she has already threatened him, but sometimes they get together, it's okay, but there's just something off about her and it seems to be getting worse. In the meantime, she is texting him And she is calling him pretty much incessantly. And he's trying to figure out what to do because he figures now for sure if he breaks up, she's going to show up at some point. She's going to get him. So he's pretty doggone worried. So he goes ahead and he works on the locket. Now he's got to get lockets in. Donna has to approve one. He's got photos of Kristen and her mother, Michelle. He's going to put one on each side of the locket as it opens. And then in the middle, there's a little glass oval window. And that's where he'll put a lock of Kristen's hair. So he's kind of working on it. And it's all aiming towards about two months later. He's got plenty of time when Kristen's birthday is coming along August 24th of that year. So he keeps getting these phone calls. He keeps getting these text messages harassed from this woman. And he realizes as much as he doesn't want to change his phone number because it's his personal and business phone number, he doesn't want to change it. But he's at the point now he has no choice. Because this woman won't stop. And he keeps telling her, you know, I, I really think, you know, we're kind of done here. And, you know, I, I don't know if we can go on seeing each other or any of that stuff. He keeps trying to be out of town and miss her and everything else. Anyway, he gets the locket done. It's almost August 24th. He, he uh, tells Donna that it's finished. And if you want to come over, she said, I'll come over and pick it up or my husband will pick it up. One of us will pick it up. And he said, look, let's do this. I need to drive towards your house anyway, but I also, I need to stop at a Verizon store because I need to do something there. And she goes, well, look, I'll have Brad just meet you there. So they meet at noon at the Verizon store. He's going to take care of the cell phone. He hands the locket over to Brad, the husband. He drives off, loves the locket and everything. He leaves to go take it to Donna. And so Kevin goes, Kevin Welsh goes into the Verizon store and he finds out that if you want to change your phone number, you don't do it in the store. Just call this number and they'll take care of it. He goes, oh, great. He drives back to his jewelry store. He's sitting in the lot. He calls Verizon, goes through it and they say, okay, you know, we can do that right here. So he gets his number changed. He writes it down. He, he gets his new number for him. About a month passes. And I don't want to go into all the technical parts of it, but the kicker is that I was curious, based upon months earlier, having Kristen's self-physical cell phone in my possession, I was curious about any last voicemail messages or anything that was on there. And I did manage to download any voicemail messages and, and I recorded them all just for posterity. And once I did that, I realized I no longer needed my wife and I we, you know we don't know we don't need this line you know we don't need her her uh, phone number so way back in June, we had her number retired so to speak and I had asked them at the time when they retire a number what actually happens and they said, well as soon as we get off the phone that number's shut down and it's put in retirement so to speak or suspension for two months but then Rough, you know, two months from now, practically to the day, it'll kind of come back out and someone else will get it. So it's like, okay, well, that's fine. Anyway, I was able to discover that Kristen's number that was retired or suspended in late June of 2005 came back out in late August of 2005. And when when Kevin Welsh got his number changed, Purely coincidentally, he wound up with Kristen's phone number. So here's the guy who has this abusive relationship going on, needs to get his number changed. And of all the numbers that could possibly go back out that day around that time, but that precise second. The guy who had such a connection to this girl who was murdered by her boyfriend, he winds up with. Her number, totally, I don't even know if you call it a coincidence. I mean, it just, that's what it was.
0: How did you realize or eventually come to realize that he got her number?
2: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So so what happened was this. There was a day, let me do the chronology just quickly again. She was killed in June. Donna went to Kevin Welsh at the jewelry store to get the locket going in July of 2005 in August of 2005 is when the locket was given to Donna who then gave it to Michelle by the way on Kristen's birthday August 24th and then a month after that there's something called a formal arraignment and that was in Philadelphia my wife and i were in Philadelphia for that and that's when they bring in the guy that did it the murderer and they tell him point blank, here's literally what you're charged with. first degree murder, third degree murder, possession of a instrument you know of crime or that could kill somebody. different things like that. When we were leaving there, one of the well one of the things I did was there were two voicemails on my phone, and I would listen to them from time to time. They were both from Kristen. I was able, phones were very different in 2005 than now. But in those days, through hitting a series of buttons, you could get the information as to when the call happened, how long the call was, who it was from, different things like that. But I'd listen to Kristen's messages, and then I'd also hit the buttons that would tell me when these were, just to reinforce. I sort of already knew. But this one time I hit it, instead of saying that the call was made from Kristen's phone, it said the call was made from. A phone from a guy named Kevin Welsh. And I didn't know who that was. You could hit a different button. You can call back whoever left the voicemail. So I called back, got his voicemail message. You know, this is Kevin Welsh. Sorry, I'm not here right now. Things like that. And I left the message and I said, you know, my name is Bill Mitchell. My daughter's name is Kristen. I know you don't know me, but you might know my daughter. I'm wondering if somehow she may have left a message from your phone. Even though I knew it, couldn't I just hadn't heard about this guy. I left that message, please call me back if you get a chance. We're driving back from the Philadelphia area courthouse to Baltimore, and my phone starts ringing. But when my phone starts ringing, you know, you could even in 2005 assign a ringtone to specific people. You could, you know, it could be a siren, could be anything, could be a bird chirping. And it was giving the ringtone as if Kristen was calling me, someone who had passed away months ago. And I'm driving the car at that time. And my wife's saying, why aren't you answering the phone? And I said, because that's Kristen's ringtone. So when I answered that phone, it could have been Kristen on the other end. I didn't know what was going to happen or some cruel trick. But all of a sudden, it's this deep voiced guy named Kevin Welsh. And it's like, what is this? So he described who he was, and he said he was a jeweler in the Baltimore area, told me where his shop was, and I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think I've been to your shop, which I had been one time, based upon a recommendation from this Donna, and I said, did you make a locket for a young woman who was killed? Did you make a locket for Donna? And he said, yeah, I just gave it to her three or four weeks ago. I said, oh my God. I said, somehow you've got my daughter's cell phone number. I will tell you, you know, if you've ever had shockwaves go through your system, me, my wife, and Kevin Welsh on the other end of the line, it was right then. I mean, it was just like, (laughs) I cannot believe. And I didn't even know the story of the girlfriend at that time. When we finally caught up with him, we found out about the girlfriend situation. So that's why he changed the number and everything. But yeah, he got Kristen's phone number. And he and I are friends for life. I call him Brother Kevin, and I'm Brother Bill to him. And when I go to call Kevin, I still see him and talk to him a lot. He's participated in a lot of parts of our life. But when I go to call him on my phone, it actually still says Kristen next to the phone number. I I never changed it to Kevin, but I know it's Kevin's number. Pretty incredible.
0: It is. It's it's completely incredible. Well, you mentioned Kristen's voicemail that you had kept and, and listened to. And that's one of the ways you stay connected in some way with her.
1: Hey guys, Kristen. Um,
0: I got your message. It is about 1020 on Wednesday morning
3: and I'm at the new apartment. It's beautiful. Um, there's a lot of stuff to be put away and a lot of stuff to be done, but I did get your message from last night and obviously things are a little hectic. Like I was really tired and trying to put stuff away and whatnot. Moving is, Quite an adventure. Um, but the movers were great and everything went really, really well. Nothing got broken. They packed everything like wrapped in paper in boxes, which is crazy. Like they did a really good job.
1: So, um, give me a call back. I love you. I guess you're at work. I'll talk to you later, Dad. Bye.
0: What goes through your mind when you listen to that voicemail message?
2: It's, uh, it's a connection to better times. It's a connection, obviously, to the living Kristen. Um, it's a connection to her whole life from August 24th, 1983, when she was born, you know, all through her life. I mean, I, I see that, just all those pictures all lined up and all the moments and all those different things. I, don't, I never feel bad listening to them. I feel, feel good listening to them. She's talking about being in this new apartment of hers and, you know, she was just very happy. She was about ready to start her job and she still had lots of friends. And, you know, we didn't appreciate, we didn't know or appreciate at that time that she was having all kinds of difficulty with this overly controlling dominant boyfriend situation. She didn't tell us about that and her friends were aware of it, but, but we didn't know. But for the most part, I feel, I feel very good. I mean, my wife, had a number of voicemail messages on her phone, but she was very good at listening to them, getting the gist and then kind of taking them off because in those days you were kind of, you had limited storage. And so I might get rid of every other one I had, but I didn't get rid of those. And then eventually recorded them of course, so that they would never get away.
0: Right. Now you've got them forever. Right. Sure. Kristen's brother, David, four years younger, Right. This happened when he was just a young teenager. And I know he and Kristen had a very special and close relationship. For a lot of kids, it seems like this would this could be something that would just break them for life. But and not that David doesn't still feel pain of losing his sister, but his perspective on this is really inspiring. So I want to take a minute here and hear from David. And we should tell people you've written a book about this whole experience, which is about to be an audiobook. And, uh, matter of fact, by the time this episode gets released, it may be out in audiobook form. Yes, it should be. What we're about to hear is the chapter that David wrote to get his perspective on how he responded to what happened.
3: I'm David, Kristen's brother. On the morning of June 4th, 2005, The day after I found out that my sister had been suddenly torn from our lives in an unthinkable manner, I experienced a moment of personal revelation that was critical in shaping my outlook on both my family's tragedy and on life itself. I decided to share it in this book in the hopes that it may help others coping with their own personal crises and tragedies, in whatever form they may come. My parents were in the funeral director's office attempting to iron out the details of the wake, funeral, and burial. The news was still fresh, our emotions were still raw and unpredictable, and our grasp on the reality of the situation was shaky at best. ways into the meeting, the funeral director asked us, do you think you would prefer a casket made of wood or of metal? I don't mean this as a criticism of the funeral director, he was truly compassionate, professional and did an excellent job for us, but subjectively, in that moment, the question felt utterly absurd and unanswerable to me. It was like your house had just burned down and the cleanup crew was asking if you preferred that they send a red truck or a blue truck to haul away the wreckage. I think the contrast of what seemed like such a trivial decision against the backdrop of a life-altering new reality really struck a chord in me. Feeling that the collapse of my emotional house of cards was imminent, I walked out of the room, left the building, and landed on a concrete bench outside, and the emotional release that followed was intense, and it was complete. I cried for my sister, I cried for my family, and I struggled through involuntary gasps for air in between outpourings of sorrow and pain. I don't know if this went on for one minute, five minutes, or ten minutes, but a horrifying new thought gradually crept over me. I wasn't worried about Kristen. I believed she still existed, just in a different way now, and the pain she endured at the very end was over. But what about my parents and me? I began for the first time to come to the realization that this was a turning point in our lives. Things would never be the same. Was this the end of any semblance of a happy, fulfilling life? Was this the beginning of a dark new reality where life would be nothing but a sad, empty, deformed version of what it once was? The life that my parents would have to live for another 30 or 40 years? That I would have to live from the age of 17 until the end of my miserable life? Just about as soon as those thoughts filled my head with a future of misery and hopelessness, they were met with equal and opposing force by a new thought that formed. It was my decision whether or not this event would bring about such a future. The darkness, the hopelessness were not certainties. Rather, they were only certain if I settled for the nearest, most obvious interpretation I could grasp of the event, namely that this was the beginning of the end. I decided in that moment not to settle for that. It was up to me to interpret what this event would mean for my life going forward. Furthermore, it was up to me to decide if I would be controlled by it or if I would find a way to become stronger as a result of it. Maybe I could even go a step further and find a way to harness its power, kind of like jiu-jitsu become a better person, and live a more intentional life than I otherwise would have. I don't know if those thoughts came to me from Kristen, from a higher power, or from a lucky firing of neurons at just the right time in my brain, but they've been critical in shaping the trajectory of my life since that day. It actually only occurred to me now as I write this that what seemed like an absurd, trivial decision that I couldn't comprehend in the funeral director's office directly led to making perhaps the most important decision of my life, only a few moments later. We live in a world rife with judgment, canned narratives, and other noise. Maybe it's not so different than it's ever been in human history, but I tend to think that the deluge of entertainment media and the life-enveloping nature of social media have made it that much more difficult for us to think for ourselves and interpret the world independently. We're surrounded by simple narratives that are too easy to adopt as lenses for assessing our own lives. Bob got a new car. Great, fun, smiley, plus celebration emojis. Patty broke up with her boyfriend. Sad, awe crying emoji. It's all too easy to view life through the lens through which you think the rest of the world would see it. Like, something terrible happened to me, so now my life must be terrible. Resist that interpretation. I don't pretend to think that every person facing a tragedy or a crisis can avoid pain and suffering. My family and I have suffered greatly. That being said, if you're one of these people, I urge you to believe that you have the authority to decide what it means in your life, even if simply to decide that it will not destroy you. That decision can have a powerful impact on the long-term severity of your suffering and the degree to which you can find happiness and fulfillment again one day. It did so for me.
0: David seems to have a wisdom that was beyond his years, you know, to have a, what a great outlook
2: on that. David, when he was even a little kid, and I mean like three, four, five years old, David was what some people referred to as an old spirit. I don't know if you've ever heard about that before, but it is. I mean, look, you know, when you've got somebody that's three years old who is, having these deep conversations with a priest about God and wanting to know more. I mean, I have pictures of him when he was maybe, I think all of like 10 or 11, sitting in a hammock with a minister after one of my cousins was married. And they're, they're in this swinging hammock. They must have been there the better part of an hour. But this man had been, I believe, a Catholic priest. Then he became kind of a minister of some description. And then he became like a Baha'i priest or minister. I'm not sure what they call them with that. But So David was just fascinated that this man had kind of moved from one thing to the next. And I mean, they're having this great conversation. And I walked up at one point and even said to this man, I said, you know, I know David's been here a long time. I mean, do you you need a break or something like that? He said, no, no, we're good. (laughs) We're good. Kind of waved me off like, get out of here, you know. This is not, this is not about you, but he's always been that guy. He's, he's a, he's a deep guy. And, and you know, from that chapter that he added to the book that even at 17 years old, when he had, you know, that's what he's talking about, that even back then he looked at the situation and thought, this can crush me. This can change me in, in in really detrimental ways or not. And I have to make a decision that I won't get swallowed up in this. There was a different time we talked, he and I talked about it. This is about four years after that Kristen was killed. And I asked him, I said, it felt like you distanced yourself from some of it. And he said, well, you and mom were doing such a good job of grieving and handling it all. I just thought, you know, I was 17, 18 years old back then. I still wanted to be a high school junior and senior. And I wanted to go to college and have a college life. And I didn't want to carry that. I didn't want to be known as the brother of a murdered sister all the time. I wanted to be me.
0: Yeah, he needs to have his own identity for sure. Right. So, your book, it's already out. And like I said, the audiobook version might be out by now. And we'll have links to that in the episode notes. You also now have a podcast where you talk to people and try to bring awareness to something that a lot of people aren't even familiar with, which is dating violence. Some of the episodes are with those who have actually survived this, where they tell their story. Can you talk a little bit about the podcast?
2: Well, you know w- what happened with this is that I put the book out, and that that was a big lift. I took over four years to to kind of piece it together, and only really in the last year that I believe it would ever get done. And you know, it was it kind of started out as as articles, short articles, and that somebody at one point had the wisdom to say why don't you stop writing these articles and just write the book? So I made the book really a bunch of short chapters. Any one of them could be considered an article, but anyhow, they all kind of string together. The key to the book, and I think the podcast is this, is that that the book tells our journey from the night of the call from the detective up until about the time the book came out. But one of the key things about the book is the book, at the end of it, and really the end meaning like the last 30 pages really goes into the warning signs of an unhealthy relationship and the template that all abusers follow. You know, I've never seen something like that before, but it gives all these insights into how to detect if this is going on, how to take action, how to be safe, you know, how to live through it, you know, which of course we know that not everybody lives through it, including my daughter. So all of those type of things. Once I got the book out, Quite frankly, I felt like I had shipped my best friend away on an airliner. And it was like, oh, I kind of missed that. I missed the challenge and the putting together of it all. And then I thought about podcasts. I thought, well, you know, I could record a podcast this morning, edit it this afternoon, and upload it tonight. And I thought, I'd like to take some of the characters in the book and bring them to life so people can hear from them, which then led to bringing on domestic violence counselors maybe going back and getting some of the law enforcement people who were involved in the case, which I've done, maybe go and get mothers of victims and fathers of victims and and of survivors, and then bringing actual survivors on. So I have male and female survivors on the podcast. I've got other people in the pipeline who are also... All of these people are just such real and such great people The survivors are so courageous because, I mean, I'm listening to these people and it's all I can do to breathe sometimes listening to how horrifically they were were handled by someone who at some point in time claimed to love them. And then to see how they worked their way through it, how they found ways to cope, how they found ways to get out of that relationship, get it behind them. But I will tell you, my imagination never would have taken me to the places that a lot of these podcast episodes do. I would say Scott's a lot like yours. I mean, some of the stories that you have are just spellbinding. They're so compelling, and I and I think that in in our, uh, my own way over here, you know, with uh, domestic violence, dating violence, that I really have the greatest ad- admiration for people who who do this for a living, and they don't get into it for the money. You know, professional. Domestic violence counselors, the one thing I can guarantee is they never get rich. But on the other hand, they're really actively bettering or even saving lives, bringing comfort.
0: Yeah, sometimes the rewards of work are not just financial. Yeah, sure. That's the truth. Well, we're going to have links to everything that we've talked about here, your book, your podcast, and... The main thing is if anyone went to your website, which is when dot com, the links to everything are there as well. And you're right. A lot of the matter of fact, we've on, on this podcast, I've done a few episodes that have kind of dealt with this subject.
2: Yes, you have. And you did it well, by the way. It was interesting listening to some of yours because because you would start down a path or a problem would be presented. And I was wondering how you'd handle it. And you and really you went right where I would have gone. So, yeah. Yeah, you you really under, you really do understand this uh, this whole issue. You really do.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, I mean that sincerely.
0: Bill, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. And I uh, hope your work continues because it's doing a lot of good.
2: Thank you. You know, I, I found out a long time ago that the best way I found to help me or to help us is by helping other people. I wouldn't say I figured that out. I just kind of experienced that. So to get up and give a talk let's say, speeches, and I I have a lot of, I I list every speech I've given, every interview is is on the website. But to get up and give a talk, and then afterwards, you know, you're trying to get get your DVD back from the video you played, and you're closing your computer and doing, you know, you're kind of a little bit tired, and you've answered questions and all, and you're just about out of there. Inevitably, someone will come up and say, thank you so much, because I went through one of these, and Or I've had people come up and say, I heard you speak here four years ago, and I just want to tell you that here's what I've done over the last four years since I heard you speak. And you hear these stories of how they were in rough shape or they were in a bad marriage. And now it's like the sun's come out, the clouds are gone, and they're happy, and they're with someone else, or they're remarried, or they're with nobody, but they're happy. That's the big jackpot for me.
0: Bill and I didn't talk a lot about the court case, but he did go through all that in detail in his book. The man who killed Kristen was convicted and sent to prison, where he'll hopefully be for a very long time. One of the things I really appreciate about Bill is that he's taken this horrible tragedy and turned it into something very positive, and it's a cause that continues to be helpful for a lot of people. I think that's something that would make Kristen very happy. You can get links to Bill's website and podcast, as well as contact information for the National Domestic Violence Hotline and other great resources at whatwasthatlike.com slash 99. And did you know that the podcast Facebook group is going to be shut down in just a few days? That's right, we've made the move. And our new place is community.whatwasthatlike.com. We already have a few hundred people over there, and new listeners are joining every day. It's great because there are no ads, no distractions, and unlike Facebook groups, when something gets posted, all of the members of the group find out about it. We talk about podcast episodes and a bunch of other thought-provoking things, but never any politics. No way. So if you'd like to join, this is your invitation. You can sign up at community.whatwasthatlike.com and I hope to see you there soon. And here's something that might surprise you. Quite a few of the stories you hear on this podcast actually come from people who listen to the show. It's true. And it's becoming more common because of the audience getting bigger and bigger. So I wanted to let you know about a few of the stories I'm looking for, specifically, just in case you've had something happen that might work for the podcast. Or maybe you know of someone who's been through one of these situations. I'm looking for someone who's fallen off a cruise ship while it was underway. Someone who had a small child kidnapped by a non-family member. A passenger who was on a train when it went over a cliff or a passenger in a car when it was hit by a train. Someone who was trapped in rubble for a day or two after an earthquake and then rescued. A prison employee who is or was in charge of executions, and a non-firefighter who ran into a burning home or building and rescued someone. So if you or someone you know has been through one of those situations, or something else that would be similar to those, I'd love to hear about it. There's a page on my website where you can do this. Just go to WhatWasThatLike.com and click on Submit Your Story. And the cool thing is, even if your story might not be a good fit for a whole episode, it might still work as a listener story. Each episode now ends with this segment called Listener Stories. And these aren't interviews. They're just one person telling something about what happened to them. It might be funny or sad or amazing or maybe just interesting. It's just you telling a story in three to five minutes. If you have something like that, Call it into the podcast voicemail line, 727-386-9468. And with that, here we are at this week's listener story from Nancy about her first experience with having to call 911. Stay safe, and I'll see you again in two weeks.
1: This is the story of my first experience calling 911. It was frightening. The day was a beautiful New England day. The colors of fall had just started to turn a gentle shade of gold throughout the back field of my parents' home up in Massachusetts. It was a day where the idea of making cookies just sparked into my head and something that I actually loved doing. The night before, mom had made a beautiful broiled steak for dinner. It was one of her favorite go-to recipes. And I guess in those days, actually, the broiler was sort of like the microwave today in our household, fast, easy, and produced a decent meal. As habit prevailed, nobody typically took out the broiler to actually clean the pan because it was a job that all of us hated. So that night, the pan stayed in the oven. The next day, as I had finished making all the dough for the cookies, I turned on the oven to preheat it to a nice warm temperature of about 375. Within minutes, I noticed a smell that was just not quite right. As I turned around and looked into the window of the oven, I saw an amber glow, definitely something not expected when you're preheating the oven for cookies. Panic struck, and I knew that those were flames shooting up inside the oven, something I didn't expect that day. Within seconds, I had called mom and said, Please help me. Something's wrong. Call 911. She came running into the kitchen and immediately dialed our local emergency fire department. Our 911 team was a local volunteer group, which is very typical of New England rural communities. The dispatcher was good enough to explain what to do and what not to do. We followed her instructions to a T and waited outside for the fire department to arrive. As they came, we followed them into the kitchen and flames had started to come out of the back vent of the, of the oven. Within seconds, they had quickly put out the fire, calmed us down, but honestly, our nerves were rattled as we sat in the cool air on the back step of the kitchen door, just thinking what might have happened. Our dogs were in hand, our hearts were, were calmed, and our fears put at ease. Thankfully, the oven remained intact and in good shape, as did the rest of our house. Thank you, 911 team in Rochester, Massachusetts. You taught me a lot that day. And, Mom, you always taught me by this experience to always clean the broiler when done with it. P.S. The cookies were great. Hello, this is Nancy May, the author of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step by step guide before, during, and after. This book is available on Amazon.com. In addition, I'm the host of the podcast Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we bring more joy and yes, more love in the times that we spend taking care of our elderly parents or perhaps a frail spouse or loved one. So come on over to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success or search for Elder Care Success on any of the major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Tunes, and Castbox. Thanks. We'll see you soon.
0: Uh.